Hi, my name is Joe Fisher. Our second reading is from the letter of 1 John, chapter 4, verse 7 through 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who loves, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God loves us, we ought also to love one another. No one has seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. We have seen and testified the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For he, fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. The word of the Lord. In John chapter 2, which is the very beginning of the Gospel of John, and we're looking at 1 John right now, in John chapter 2, we get Jesus' first words as recorded by John. Some guys start to follow Jesus, and he turns to them and says, what are you seeking? Which really means, what do you want? Now, he doesn't say it like that. He's actually saying it with an insight into humanity. What do you want? What do you really want? I see that you're following me. But what is it you're really after? What do you want? Philosopher Jamie Smith said that we are not primarily thinking creatures, we're desiring creatures. So you and I like to think of ourselves as smart people, intellectual people, we make decisions. We think about things, we figure things out, we understand and believe things. But Jamie Smith says, no, 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 we're actually not primarily thinking beings, we're primarily erotic or emotional desiring beings. We love things and want things. Kurt Thompson, uh, MD psych uh, psychiatrist, wrote an article uh, during the pandemic shutdown about our wants and needs, and he actually was talking about children, how babies are born, literally, and how we're not much different. He said, children have no lack of wanting. Every baby is born hungering and thirsting, and they're hungering and thirsting for comfort, for nourishment, Infants and toddlers are bounding bundles of desire, and they're unselfconscious about it. And as it turns out, this depth of desire only stops when we're dead. The question is not if we want, it's what do we want? No matter what children want, whether it's like some milk or a baseball glove or a car, the object of their desire always represents a bid for loving attachment. What children want 
even adult ones, is to be known. And to be known is to be loved. Two weeks ago, I was talking about loving one another, one of John's primary themes. And that's actually one of the themes of this section. But underneath of God's call for us to love one another is God's love for us. And in verse 8 of our section this morning in chapter 4 of 1 John, we read that anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. But think about that phrase right there, God is love. This is a declarative statement that we've said again and again, oh, God is love. God is loving. God is love. What he's saying is not just that God is the source of love, but is, is actually love itself. God is love. And which means everything that God does, all of his activity, even his holiness, his justice, his judgment, all of his activity is loving because he is love. And the central act of God's love for all of humanity and creation is the cross. What we most want, according to Kurt Thompson, and we know this too, is to be known and loved. And when we say to be known, it means for somebody to know us deep down in, to know all the depths of our brokenness, our ugliness, physically, emotionally, our past, our scars, our struggles, our failures, and not reject us or laugh at us. We want to actually be known and unafraid and unashamed to be loved for who we are. And that means we can't rely on a person to give that to us. We need God's love. But we actually struggle to accept God's love. I don't know how long you've been a Christian. I've been a Christian for most of my life. But we all struggle day in and day out with accepting the depth of God's love for us. Beth Moore, in her study on the Apostle John, writes, I am convinced that everything in a Christian's life hinges on his or her active acceptance of the lavish, unconditional love of God. And she goes on to say, this is not easy, and it becomes a barrier or a hindrance to our growth, to our peace, to our joy in life, because we actually don't trust God's love for us fully. So as we continue to look at this passage, here's the two areas we're going to look at. We're going to look at God's love for us by first looking at verse 9 and 10 and what God did, and then verse 16 through 18, what it does, what God did does for us. So first, what God did. Let me read again verse 9 and 10. These are well known to people who have been churchied their whole life, but here it is. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or atoning sacrifice for our sins. So what these two verses are talking about is the pinnacle, the climax, the apex, the central place of God's love for us is found in the incarnation, Jesus, God's Son, coming to earth, and his death on the cross for us. And in a sense, the cross is the center, center point. It is how we define love and how we experience it. It's not just an example, go and do likewise, although it is an example, love like this. Christ's death on the cross. But what it's saying is that 
Christ's death on the cross was necessary for our salvation. It's central to God's plan for the redemption of the whole of creation. All that he was doing from before time began and bringing creation to life in the midst of our fall and brokenness and everything that's happened in history climaxed in the cross and what God was doing in demonstrating his love and redeeming the creation until the restoration of all things. And the cross is the center point on which it all hinges. The biblical language for what God does for us in Jesus, there's metaphors and language. It includes words like um, redeem or redemption, which is kind of pay to set somebody free from slavery, reconcile, bringing two warring parties to have peace, justify, to be made right legally, atone or propitiation, which we have here, if free, pardon. There's all these terms, but all of them boil down to this, what God did for us in Jesus Christ. It's the gospel, the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. But today's verse is, uh, especially verse 10, is pointing to this word atonement or propitiation. Those are words we don't use very often. We don't propitiate much around here. The word underneath of it has to do with covering over something, covering over like nakedness and shame, but also absorbing wrath or justice. It's fulfilling justice. It's bearing judgment. So it would be like um, somebody taking a sentence, a criminal sentence, when they've been condemned, a criminal has been condemned, a sentence has been applied, and it's taking that sentence in somebody else's place. And in that sense, it's paying for a sin or an offense. The atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross is, as one commentator called it, love's essence. If you take love, boil it down to the only thing that could be left sitting in the pan, it would be Jesus' death for us on the cross. It's a sacrificial love given to the undeserving and the guilty and expects no return. It's exactly what Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah 53. This is 700 years before Jesus. The prophet Isaiah is in Israel in a time when Israel was becoming more and more evil and corrupt, and yet they were God's chosen people. And Isaiah prophesies a coming Messiah, a Christ, a Savior. And this is what he writes about him. He would be pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ's death on the cross is this thing being talked about, and it deals with all of human sin. It's using all these words, transgression, iniquity, all of our failures. And through Christ, peace and healing are brought. But it also notes this, all of us have gone astray. Everyone is like a sheep who has gone astray. And he's even talking about himself. Isaiah the prophet, the holy man of God, we've all gone astray. We all need the Messiah to deal with our sin. And that's what God did. He dealt with all that is wrong with us and the world. So what's wrong with us and the world? Seems like a simple thing to say. What's wrong with us in the world, right? 
Here's what I would say is we need to ask this question. This is sort of the, the backup to it is, if we're going to say something like, um, we need to comprehend God's love for us and what he did for us, then we need to grasp why he died on the cross for us. In other words, what do we need to be saved from? And most of us, if you come from a religious or a Christian circles, you talk about the word sin, and that's a word that fits in traditional cultures. We're no longer a traditional culture. But in traditional cultures, um, they're honor and shame cultures. They're collective. And so all the rules are well-known because you receive them from your parents or the community or your religious tradition. So your religion, your community, your parents tell you how to live, and you follow the rules. And if you don't follow the rules, you're crushed by guilt and shame. And you know, that's true of every traditional culture and every religion besides Christianity has a set of rules. You don't reach nirvana without following the rules. It's not no rules. It's a different set of hoops, of achievements, of letting goes. So every religion has a set of rules to follow. Follow them or you're crushed by guilt and shame. But we don't live in a traditional culture. We live in a modern culture. It's not collective. It's individualist. And our individualistic culture doesn't say follow the rules of your parents or the community or your religion. It says do what you want and find yourself. Nowadays, we by and large don't have guilt as a problem. We have anxiety as a problem. We're not a guilt-ridden people. We're an anxious and fearful people. Our entire lives are built on identity and achievement. Find your identity, discover who you are, do what makes you happy, achieve, perform, succeed, prove. Prove that you matter. Do these things so that you can be loved, accepted. What's wrong with us modern people? Well, we're neurotic. We're insecure. And we have pretty low self-esteem. At least, you know, kind of if we're dealing with it purely on a therapeutic way, you would say like, okay, we need to figure out how to talk to ourselves, how to understand ourselves, to not use the negative language. With our, and that's good stuff. That's all really good stuff. We need the therapy to help us to deal with some of these things. And yet, even if you do all of the therapy, you will realize this, if, if they haven't helped you to figure this out, there's still something wrong with you. Something's missing. And the Bible calls that sin, that brokenness within us. And most of us, if we have sort of a traditional understanding of religion, think of sin as immorality. It's actually hard to be a, a kid, a high school kid, and not think of sin as doing bad things. And so you think, do I do more bad things or less bad things than my brother or sister? Do fewer than they do, you're good. We think of sin as breaking the rules, but the Bible also talks about sin at its root as living apart from God. Doing what you want without regard for God at any moment. And on that basis, we all do it. You may follow all the rules, but why do you follow those rules? Who or what is Lord and Savior of your life? We need the gospel. We need the gospel. The gospel 
was stated very clearly in verse 9 and 10, God sent his son to die as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. And this is part of the whole grand narrative of the entire Bible and all of history. You know, in the garden, God places the man and the woman in the garden, and he is in fellowship with them. They are dwelling with him, fully loved, fully known, fully loved and accepted. And he says, I give you all the trees. Eat whatever you want except the tree of knowledge. On the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Adam and Eve, of course, listen to the voice, and they're like, ah, well, let's try and eat it. They eat. They don't die, and yet every relationship breaks down. Their relationship with one another breaks down, with God breaks down, with nature breaks down. And in the fall and in their brokenness, they're cast out of the garden. God sent them out from the garden, it says, and away from the tree of life. In Christ, God reverses the fall and undoes the work of sin. God, instead of sending Adam and Eve out or sending us out, sends his son down. The very source of life enters this broken and deadly world. He goes out from heaven, the dwelling place of God, to die on a tree of condemnation. He was forsaken, driven out by the Father, so that we who are apart from God by our nature might be brought in and dwell with God. And it's all by grace. It's nothing you or I do. It's not our achievements, our moral record, or anything to get us there. And that's the hard part of fully accepting the depth of God's love for us. You know, as a kid growing up, a teenager too, I, I was a Christian, okay, so I've been a Christian since I was a little kid, but as a kid growing up, I had a lot of guilt. And I knew that I was sinful. So in Christianity, we talk about admitting that you're sinful. I could do that. I could admit that I was sinful. And, and I, I said I understood the gospel, that we are saved by Christ's death for us. It is by grace we are saved. And I said that I, I believed it, but I didn't really get it. And here's what I found in my life, is at that time in my life, my repentance, like my contrition when I did mess up, my avoidance of known sins, the ones that I was aware of and felt bad about, not the ones I didn't care about, my spiritual activity, my religious activity, my Bible reading, showing up at youth group, doing a mission trip, all my religious activity and my emotional fervor for God, would I be brought to tears when I sang songs? All of that or some combo of that helped assuage my guilt, my feelings of guilt. But I also tended when I was doing them well, like repenting well, doing my religious activity well, having a lot of fervor and energy for God, I would feel self-righteous and superior to those of you who weren't as good as me. But when the gospel began to sink in some years later, I realized that even my repentance, my religious activity, my attempts to avoid immorality were also ways to control God. To get him off my back, because I always felt like he was there trying to look over me. And to feel good about myself, because if I was doing these things compared to you or you, I was much better. And that's really what matters, how I compare to the rest of you guys with my religiousness. In other words, I had not grasped the gospel of grace. I was acting as if Christ's death was not enough. And I needed to do my part. I needed to fill in the gaps or make sure that it really applied now or somehow make sure that I felt okay with God. 
I didn't really grasp the depth of my sinfulness and need or the finished work of Christ on the cross. That everything we have in Jesus is by grace. We do nothing. He has done everything. When I began to let the gospel of grace sink deeper and apply it constantly in every area of my life, you know what it did? It killed my superiority and self-righteousness right away. It's like, oh, I have no reason to be self-righteous or superior. But it also enabled me to enjoy God more deeply, live in peace and love of people that I found difficult. We talk about this here, this phrase, you are more sinful than you're willing to admit, but you're more loved in Jesus Christ than you dare to imagine. That's the gospel summed up. You are more sinful than you're willing to admit, but more loved in Jesus Christ than you dare to imagine. And as I let that sort of phrasing sink into my heart, you know what I realized is that I literally don't feel anymore like I'm better than anyone else. And I've tried to convince people of this. I've tried to talk to friends of mine who don't believe what I believe, and I'm like, no, literally, I don't think I'm better than you. I don't think I'm better than a criminal, than the worst people in the world is by our standards. Maybe they've done more damage in the world, but each of us is equally sinful in our heart. And I'm not very far from doing those same things. Each of us needs the grace and mercy of God. And any one of us, the murderer or the priest, can fall on the grace and mercy of God and be accepted and loved. As the gospel pushed in, I began to feel less superior to other people. And this is hard, because here's my observation. All of us feel superior to some people. We just do by nature. It may not be religious, irreligious. It may be on some other basis. In a sermon on this, uh, on sin in our lives, Tim Keller said this, your social location makes you look down, prone to look down at people of certain races, classes, nationalities, even your vocation does. So whatever's going on in your life, whatever you have about your life, there's some way in which you'll look down on other people, right? You'll look down on other people because they're not as athletic, they're not as rich, or they don't come from your particular bent on something. He even goes on to say, uh, like, in vocation, in your work, people who are artists, you know, they look down on traditional work cultures, like, oh, look at those people. They're serving the man for money, nine to five or 70 hours a week. Look at them laboring over Excel spreadsheets. What idiots. And then people in traditional jobs look at artists and say, do they even work? What are they doing with their life? What a waste. Conservatives and liberals, I don't know where you are on that, but if you're particularly conservative or particularly liberal, do you not look down on the other side? You don't feel better than them? Superior to them? Of course you do. Of course you're better than them. You know that. It's them. The gospel doesn't allow for that. It says you are more sinful than you're willing to admit, which should humble you deeply. You need Jesus, whether you're conservative or liberal, an artist or a banker. And yet it should also give you deep assurance. You are more loved in Jesus Christ than you dare to imagine. And it is by grace you have been saved. There is confidence and fearlessness when we rest in that. 
That's what John's talking about in verses 16 to 18. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. I want to stop there on that last phrase. Fear has to do with punishment or judgment. And I think when I first read that, I was like, really? Is that actually true? Does my fear have to do with punishment or judgment? And then I thought about the opposite, which is when I don't have fear, I have confidence. And what's the basis of most of our confidence? It's how we are performing up to our standards, our aims in life. So give it this way. If what you value in life is control, if that's your ultimate aim in life, and you don't necessarily even realize it, it's your, your, the thing you're most after is control, then you will be confident if you are prepared. If you're prepared for the test, prepared for the hike, prepared for the game, prepared for the sermon, you'll be more confident. Otherwise, you're going to have this growing sense of dread of judgment and punishment. If career is your ultimate goal and aim, then the more you're successful, the more money you're making, the more confidence you'll have. If you live to have other people approve of you, it may even be just having a boyfriend or a girlfriend to know that you are sexually, romantically attractive. That fills you up. But what if they break up with you? All your confidence is gone. We're kind of living in this confidence based on performance and fear of the punishment of what happens if I don't have this anymore. Gospel confidence is entirely different than our normal way of having confidence. It says that you and I are loved and accepted because of Christ's death on the cross. Not my achievement, not my moral record, not even how I feel about myself. I'm loved and accepted because of Jesus Christ. God's view of me changes everything for me. And what is God's view of us? We actually get it in the middle of uh, verse 17. It's this strange phrasing in here, in verse 17, that says, as he is, so also are we. As he is, so also are we. This is talking about the he is Jesus. I could reword this a little bit differently. We are as Jesus is. Here's essentially what it's getting at based on the context. When you and I believe God's love. We receive God's love for us in Jesus and his death on the cross for our sin. God the Father now views us as his only begotten son. In other words, when God looks at you, at your soul, at your person, God no longer sees, he's no longer seeing you as the guilty and anxious and selfish and insecure and jealous and addicted, workaholic, sexually impure, identity confused, arrogant meanie that you are. He looks at us, he looks at you, and he sees his son Jesus, who is fully loved, fully accepted by his father. In other words, putting it a different way, the relationship that Jesus has with the father is the same that God offers to us now. As he is, so are we. Now, this may also imply that we're supposed to look like Jesus, become more like Jesus. Like, as Jesus is, so are you. So, you know, 
become like Jesus. But it doesn't actually say that. It doesn't say, as Jesus is, you guys should look like that too. It simply states it as a declarative statement, a finished statement, as Jesus, so you. When God sees Jesus and he sees you if your faith is in Jesus, it's the same thing. And I think if we were going to kind of take any implication of what we are to do, it is to enjoy that status, the security of God's full approval and love as if you are Jesus, the Son himself. And live into that. Live into your true identity. Maybe you don't feel like Jesus, but when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. Live into your true identity as God's fully accepted son or daughter. Become who you already are in God's eyes. It's like this. One of the words for uh, salvation is redemption, being set free from slavery. Okay? So, when you put your faith in Christ, you're no longer a slave, but now you're free. But if you went back to the ancient world, a slave set free, or even in our modern uh, chattel slavery, when a slave was set free, they still were of the lowest caste in society. The difference is that we move from slave to set free to princess. You are now a daughter of the king. You go from being enslaved to somebody who's just free but poor to being a daughter of the king. Quit living like a slave or a poor person. Live as a daughter of the king. Your view of yourself should not be others' view of you or your own view of you, God's view of you. You're a son or daughter of the king. Live that way. That's when we do live that way, we're living in perfect love. You know, verse 17 and 18 talk about perfect love and perfected love. And in perfect love or perfected love, there is no fear. So on one level, just remember this, that um, a baby, a baby who is born to a family who is loving has a mother, a mother who does the thing that, um, that he is, the baby is seen, soothed, safe, and secure. It's the four S's of attachment, of loving attachment. And a baby is seen, soothed, safe, and secure. That baby has no fear. And that baby becomes a toddler who holds on to mom's leg. You go into a public space like out here at a grocery store down the street, and if you have a two-year-old who's safely attached, securely attached to you, they, they know that, you're lo that you love them, that two-year-old, whenever they're a little bit anxious, they will grab hold of your leg because that is a place of safety, because they know it is the source of their love and assurance. And in that place, they have no fear. I've got mom's leg. God is saying to us through John that there is a perfected love that happens and is available for us to have no fear in life. And the funny thing is the word perfect or perfect, perfected, is not ideal or number one or beautiful. It's not the best. So perfect love is not the best love. It's actually completed love, finished love. It comes from the Greek word telos, which means ends, goals, aims. It's reached its completion point. The completion point of love is God sending his son as an atoning sacrifice for us. But then it goes on to say that that love is perfected in us. So perfect love is perfected in us. So perfect love, completed love, the, the best love is God's love by his death on the cross. And it is perfected actually as we receive it. 
It reaches its end end when we receive it and live it out. As we abide in God, as we know and believe is the wording that he uses here. This happens to us when we come to faith in Christ. When you come to faith in Christ, love is perfected in you. And yet it's also a process that we have to apply and experience, push it out into our relationships, our work, our internal dialogue, how we deal with comparison, how we deal with fears, guilt, shame. As we are applying and pushing it out, love's reaching its ends. And in this perfected, received, and applied love, there is no fear of punishment, judgment, failure, falling short, measuring up. We're no longer looking at ourselves or our record to feel good, nor are we even looking at others or how we compare with others. We're simply resting in Christ's finished work on the cross and God's perfect love and acceptance of us. Let's pray. God, we know, some of us know what's wrong with us, and some of us don't. We just know that we fall short, even of our own standards. We live in anxiety and guilt and shame and fear, but you call us to a life of love, to experience the fullness of your love for us, to know that you want to, us to see ourselves as you see us, as your beloved son and daughter. Open our eyes to the grace and mercy that you have for us and your amazing love in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. I'm forgiven because you are